We are now in our second to last week in the book of Genesis, and up to this point, as we've gone through chapters 1 and 2, we focused in primarily on what is right and good in this world, how God has ordered this creation to be good. But today, we spend our first of two weeks in looking at what has gone wrong, because life in this world can run the table. It has incredible highs marked by intense joy, peace, and satisfaction. And in that, we see and experience the inherent goodness of creation. And yet life also can have deep lows, where the darkness seems unbreakable, where pain and anger and death and despair seem dominant, and we are tempted to just give up. We've all experienced these types of extremes. Moreover, when we talk about things like sin, all of us have felt the weight of it, especially the weight of our own sin. You feel the weight of your sin in your gut when you know that you were in the wrong. You feel the heat and the anger rise in your chest when you are the one who has been wronged. You feel sadness and despair at the sight of great evil and injustice, wishing, can I not just do something, anything, to push back? For these reasons, every belief system, every worldview, every religion must answer what evil is. Where did it come from? What has gone wrong in this world? And how we answer that question invariably impacts where we look for solutions, both as a society and as individuals. What we view as the problem directs where we move to for a solution. We see this in the area of politics all the time. A family friend of mine once said to me, as he commented on the increasing divisions between the political left and the political right, he said this. He said, we used to agree on what the problems were. And we just disagreed on the solutions. Now we disagree on what even the problems are. You see, this is the issue, isn't it? If we have a one list that says this is all good and the other list says, no, those things are wrong, we end up moving in two different directions. There are really, in our country today, two fundamentally different worldviews at war with one another. And that is why there is an ever-shrinking amount of common ground in public dialogue. So what has gone wrong? The Bible provides a simple answer. Sin. And we'll get into that more these next two weeks. But outside of Scripture, in the West today, what are the other options? Well, really, there are only two answers that are popular today in the West. And the first is this, that there is no answer. No answer whatsoever. Nothing has gone wrong, for there is no such thing as a universal right and wrong. And this is, as we've seen again and again, the consistent answer for anyone who believes in a random, self-producing universe that is limited by Darwinism and naturalism. If this universe is just physical, just natural, just came about through a Big Bang plus time and chance, means that there is no standard of morality whatsoever. These words are reduced, right and wrong, to preferences. Something is good, something is right if I prefer it, if I like it, if I enjoy it. And it is wrong if I do not. And that changes from person to person. Whatever is, in this worldview, is right. Universe, as one naturalist put it, is just pitiless indifference. There is no right and wrong. So there is no problem of evil or problem of good. For the only standard is existence. Whatever is, is. There's really nothing beyond that. And if you find that answer as unfulfilling and silly as I do, then good. No one wants to live in such a universe as that. 
The second answer that is sometimes put forward is that what has gone wrong is primarily outside of me, outside of the individual. It is society, not the individual person, that is corrupted. The curse, this current movement can be rightly traced to the work of the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He argued that the self is inherently good, and what ends up corrupting him is the expectations that others and society as a whole or institutions within society place upon us. It is those who wish to tell us how to live, like the church, the state, societal norms that corrupt us. And what man needs to be free, what man needs to be good, is to be his truest self, free from the influences of society. And so oppression and evil are primarily located, primarily located outside of me. They're found out there, not in here. And society holds you down, won't let you be you. And so we must, we must tear down the oppressive parts of society, especially any morality that has expectations upon how we are to conduct ourselves. The problem is not our hearts, it is not internal, but it is external. And so we all become victims. And when we feel like victims, we are justified to do whatever we want. Rousseau's work, as I've mentioned elsewhere, has been picked up, it's been built upon, it's been morphed by generations and generations, including people most notably like Karl Marx. But by locating the problem in civilization, people are trained to trust themselves and to distrust and tear down institutions. And this is happening in our streets every day. The problem is never me, and it's always outside of me. That's very appealing. It's tempting. And the problem is that anything that makes me feel bad or tells me who I am or how I should live, especially in sexual realm of life, that is oppressive. And this is the tune and the theme of a million pop songs, kids' movies, and every gender studies course. The problem is not me. It's outside expectations, standards, and categories. Like some people are boys and girls. That is oppressive to the individual. And so the solution is liberation. Not political liberation. No, the state must force this liberation by targeting anyone who would place moral standards. These are the basic options outside of Christianity today in the West. Nothing is wrong or everything is wrong except me. I am the victim, and that is a toxic way to live. The Bible offers us something completely different about what has gone wrong. It says the primary thing is inside of us, not outside of us. The primary problem is inside of me, not outside of me, and it is sin. And we're going to break that down today as we walk through the first 13 verses of Genesis 3. And we are going to see what tactics Satan uses to get us to sin and how man responds. Satan's tactics. At the heart of our fall into sin and the corruption of creation is the deception and the lies of Satan himself. And in the first sin, we are given a foundational grid by which we can understand how Satan functions. Paul tells us that we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes and designs. We know how he operates. We know the general pattern that he follows. And if you want to understand yourself better, you want to understand your own struggle with sin better, if you want to understand how Satan tempts you, you need to understand Genesis chapter 3. He deceives us 
so that he can accuse us and blame us and separate us from God. And the first tactic he uses is he makes God's commands seem burdensome and unreasonable. Look at the first half, or the second half of verse 1. He said to the woman, that is the serpent, that is Satan, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any, any tree in the garden? Note, he accuses God of forbidding all the trees in the garden, every one of them. God doesn't want you to have this good fruit, any of it. He just wants you to starve, doesn't he? That's unrealistic. How can he put you in a garden and expect you not to eat anything? Satan adds to what God's actual command is when he says, you may eat of any of the trees of the garden except for this one. There's only one. That is off limits. Eve herself picks up on this, and she even adds to God's command herself and says, no, we can eat of any of them, but we can't eat of this one. We can't even touch it. And so we see adding to the law of God, saying his law has not gone far enough arrogant to the core. And so Satan lies with his first statement, and he is casting doubt upon the very character of God. He's sowing seeds in the heart of mankind. And this tactic is still used today. We hear it again and again. No one can keep these commands. Sometimes, even from conservative pulpits, no one can keep these commands. We are told outside of the church, you can't expect two people to be virgins when they get married. Not in today's age. But God does. God is the author and the inventor of sex. God created sex to be enjoyable. God created sex as a blessing. And he determines its right expression. God's commands are looked at often as archaic, bigoted, and destructive. And yet study after study shows the more the West wanders from the biblical sexual ethic, the more damage and carnage and despair we reap as a society. Satan's tactic, second tactic, is to attack God's word directly. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God says if you eat of this tree, you will die. Satan says, that's a lie. You're not going to die. He looks at the spoken word of God and he says, this is not true. It has errors in it. You cannot trust it. Reality is not like this. And so Satan puts before you his own interpretation of what is really true, of reality. He pits that against God. How much death and evil have we suffered because we believed a lie? And part of the reason we listen to his lies is because he tells us what we want to hear, what is soothing, what itches or scratches our itching ears. We see it all the time today. God won't judge you. I mean, God's just love, man. He's not going to judge you for your sin. He won't bring death. Surely you will not die. That is not how the universe works. This past generation saw a mighty fight over the inerrancy of Scripture. And all that means is that the Bible is without error. Inerrancy, not with error. But the Bible is perfect. The conservatives formally won this battle, saying the Bible is perfect and without error. But yet today, those foundations are eaten away again and again. Today, many want to say, just as the serpent did, did God really say? And you will not surely die. And primarily... 
Again, this is in the realm of sexuality. It is the battlefield of our day. Did God really say homosexuality is a sin? That sexual expression is only for one man and one woman for life? Yes. He did. Full stop. Will, did God really say that you will eternally die for the sin of homosexuality? The former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, from his own pulpit, cast doubt upon that, saying, well, yeah, it's a sin, but that's not the sin you get sent to hell for. But I will tell you here that that is utter hogwash. Every single sin, whether it be homosexual sin, heterosexual sin, gossip, can send you rightly to eternal damnation and death and hell. God's word does not change, and it is clear on this. Yes, you will die for that sin if it is not repented of. And we have an undermining of the clear teaching of God in his word. Man, with the aid of the serpent, can muddy even the clearest teachings of Scripture. Culture changes. Fads come and go. But the word of the God is forever. It is eternal. If you hear a preacher or see a book that says something like this, what the Bible really says about fill in the blank. Generally speaking, I can only think of one exception, but generally speaking, Put your guard up because it's probably going to go against the clear teaching of what Scripture says. If you encounter a, teaching, or a teacher who says he is rethinking his stances on sexual issues and they just happen to move towards what is popular and acceptable today, then he has listened to the serpent. There is no other way to put it. We have seen an uptick of what is some are calling deconstructing the faith in the movement of ex-evangelicals. And it was painted as a new trend, but this is just what we see in the Garden of Eden. We are told that we need to deconstruct our faith. We need to tear it apart and tear it down to see how culture has impacted it. And just like any good lie from Satan, there is an element of truth. Culture does impact us. We do have a tendency to read our culture upon Scripture. But the thing is, is Scripture can break through that. And we are supposed to use Scripture to interpret culture, not vice versa. There are really are things in our culture that evangelicalism needs to deconstruct. Our obsession with having 13 campuses and having light shows and smoke shows and entertainment and comedians standing behind pulpits. Those things need to be deconstructed. They are not found in Scripture. And yet, the sad thing is, is those running this deconstructing, they always aim it towards homosexuality and sexual ethics. And as they try to rid the influence of culture, they end up looking just as the modern culture looks today. If that is you, it is not me and those who hold to the historic teaching of the church who are being shaped by culture, but it is you. It is you. Here's a hint for you. If you want to read someone from a different culture, read someone from different eras and time periods because they thought differently. And in church history, for 2,000 years of the church, and then a few more thousand years of Jewish history before that, the people of God have sp spoken with resounding unity on sexual ethics, especially homosexuality. It's sinful. It's against God's order and design and nature. 
people from different cultures, different societies, different ethnicities, and different time periods have all said the same thing for thousands of years. Why? Because they are reading the same eternal book. If you think, just for a moment, that you have reached some new conclusion of what this book teaches, that in 2,000 years of church history, no one has really believed, but you are God's gift to mankind that have finally stumbled upon this new teaching, and it just happens to fit the progressive popular ideology of today, then I struggle to find the words to describe such utter arrogance and foolishness. It is you who are shaped by culture, not the billions of Christians from world history and around the world today who still hold to the teachings of the faith. Modern people, especially woke deconstructionists, are some of the most arrogant to ever have walked this planet. And even they can be forgiven by God if they turn from their sin. The third tactic Satan uses is to attack God's character. He claims that God is withholding something good from you. God knows, he says, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Of course, Eve was already created like God. God made them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He made them. She is like God. And yet, by sinning, she will become less like her God. Satan attacks the character of God by saying he is withholding something desirable. He is withholding something good from you. He is withholding knowledge. He just wants to keep you down. God is selfish. He doesn't want you to be more like him. He doesn't love you. He wants to maintain his power over you. He's a cosmic killjoy. And yet, what God has commanded is good. And the breaking of this, the breaking of this does not produce the desired result. It's almost as if God knew what he was talking about. The fourth tactic, it summarizes all of these, Satan attacks reality. Everything that occurs here is a lie. It is not what is actually there. It is an attack upon God and reality. He puts forward his own interpretation of what the world is, and it's wrong. If you want to, listen to me, if you want to help yourself in your own combating of your own sinful tendencies, if you want to understand your sinful battle, if you want to understand others, listen to this. If you want to combat the temptations of sin and Satan, you need to start with this. Whatever he is saying is not true, and whatever he promises it will give you, it will not. How many times do we have to come back to satisfied before we realize that? But Satan is cunning. He even uses and twists and distorts the word of God to prop up his lies. When Jesus was tempted, there's this interesting contrast. When Jesus is tempted in the Gospels, he is fasting. He is without food in the wilderness where Adam and Eve were in a perfect paradise with lots of food, well-fed, and in a sinless world. And Jesus is in a sinful world in a wilderness being tempted by the very same serpent. And Satan approaches Christ and he cites scripture to the word of God. He says, don't you know that God says this? Don't you know that God says that? And Jesus corrects him. What you need to know is 
Satan is an exegete. He's a preacher. He's a teacher. He uses scripture out of context and distorted, but he uses it. And Jesus rebukes and corrects him. And unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus, hungry and in the desert, says, no, I won't do that. I'm not going to do that. And that is a response we need to learn. Second, let's see how man responds to sin, to the temptation and the sin. How do Adam and Eve respond to the words of Satan? And here again, we can learn something about our own sinful tendencies and how people generally function. Genesis 3 is foundational. It has given you lenses by which to understand yourself in this world. And the first response to the temptation we see here is the age-old pattern of sin, something everyone in this room has done. And that pattern is look, desire, justify, and take. Look, desire, justify, and take. Eve listens to the lies of the serpent, to the temptation, and she begins to start looking and seeing the world through those lies. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. This should sound really familiar to you. The first thing we do is we look at something, and we determine on our own, without God's authority, that it is good. We think, this is the thing that I need. This thing will make me wise. This thing will satisfy me. And we so we set ourselves upon the throne of God and say, I'm going to determine what is good and what is not. And once we determine that something is good, the cycle moves to desire. This looks good and things that are good, we want. Why shouldn't I have something that's good? And we start to desire it with our whole beings. Why shouldn't I be wise? Why shouldn't I be more like God? What shouldn't I, why shouldn't I have this good thing? And the more we think about it, the more it bounces around in our heads and our hearts, the greater the desire grows. And before long, we start making excuses and finding opportunities to take what we want. That's the next step. We justify it. Eve says, this makes good food and it will make me wise. Why shouldn't I be wise? After all, I mean, I'm in the image of God. Why shouldn't I be more like him? I deserve this. And finally, the sin is accomplished as she takes and eats. Feeling justified in her rationalization, she becomes unjustified. We reach out and take the very thing that dominated our thinking. Thinking this time it will be different. This time it will satisfy, but it's all a lie. And we are like dogs returning to our vomit, never learning the lesson. The thing that undergirds the cycle of sin is that we set ourselves up to be rival gods, to make our own moral judgments as to what is good and acceptable. The heart of the problem is, is we want to be God, and we want to do what is right in our own eyes. But we are not God. We do not determine what is right and wrong. We are not three times holy. We are not infinite. We are fi finite, sinful creatures. And we do not know better than God. So how does man respond to falling into sin? He responded to the temptation with the cycle of sin. How does he respond to being guilty? Predictable. There's no joy here. There's no becoming more like God. Rather, they immediately run and hide. 
There is now something new in creation that had never been there before. Fear. They used to hear God coming in the garden and would have joy and fellowship with him. But then we read this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now they run in sheer dread and terror. And that's right, they should be scared. A holy God is coming for them. And they have rebelled. And God asks them, where are you? There's a separation. A separation between God and his good creation. In some ways, that judgment is hanging over Adam's head. And he should have ran to God instead of ran and hid. So God asks Adam what happened. He says, it's that woman. It's her. The one you gave to me. It's her fault. It's your fault for giving her to me. We have come a long ways from the joy and the ecstasy at the pinnacle of the end of chapter 2 where the husband and wife become one flesh. Now he's blaming her. And the woman, she blames the snake. It's that serpent. We love to shift the blame, to blame our circumstances, our society, our parents, or even God. And we do this because the guilt and the shame we rightly feel we hate. And we try to hide ourselves. We try to hide ourselves from God. We try to sew fig leaves together like they did, to cover the guilt, to put anything over it so that no one will see it because none of us like our sin being broadcasted. It is our natural desire to cover sin, to cover our own sin by our own works and by our own strength, to delete the browsing history and to bury it deep in the hope that no one ever knows. But it doesn't work. Sin is always pressing itself to come forward. And this is our tendency. To hide and to try to cover our own sin. But we cannot. The fig leaves we heap upon them don't do the job. So what hope is there for wretches like us? Our last point here. God provides a covering. God provides a covering. In the midst of all the sin, judgment, and betrayal, God still provides with mercy. Verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. They tried to cover their shame with fig leaves, and God used animal skins. That means that God killed animals. He sacrificed them to cover the sin and the shame of his people. These are the very first sacrifices in all of the world, showing us again that the wages of sin is death. Something, someone must die to cover our sin. And of course, no animal, no animal blood, no animal fur can actually cover our sin. The blood of bulls and goats cannot do it. And this first sacrifice points forward to the one True sacrifice. Christ Jesus upon that cross. Someone had to die to cover your sin. Someone had to die to remove your shame so that you would not be guilty. And the someone to die, he had to be one of the human race to die for us. And he had to be without sin. Otherwise, his death was just for himself. 
and he had to be God so that he could die for more than just one of us. And that is exactly what we find in Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. And like those animal skins, but only better, his death and his blood covers our sin. And if the blood of Christ has covered your sin, it is covered forever. In a way better way than anything you or I could ever do. The shame and the guilt we try to cover ourselves can only be swept away by the blood of Christ. You can try to cover your sin yourself. You can try to keep it a secret. But it is only by bringing it to the feet of Christ, repenting of it, and throwing it upon him that your sin can be dealt with. Only God can save us from our sin. And he has provided a way through Jesus Christ. And let me add this as a note of application. Those who are forgiven, who have had their sins covered, will forgive others as the opportunities arise. In the book of Proverbs, it says the wise man, the righteous man, covers an offense. Not his own offenses, but when he is the one who's been wronged, when there is a sin guilt that he has a right over, he covers it. Why? Because he is like his maker who loves to cover sin. Only by the grace and mercy of God, only through the gospel message of Jesus Christ, can that main problem, our heart problems, our sin problems, the internal problems that have driven this world off the cliff, only through Christ can it be dealt with. The problem is sin. The problem is internal. It's in our hearts. Does it manifest itself in society? Of course. But the primary problem is not out there, but it's in here. And Christ in Christ alone can deal with it. Let's pray.